Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have become real to us because we think that that helps us draw more power out of them and we need all the power we can get. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I'm so excited to have with us again uh, Josh Matson, who is a, a seminary teacher and has uh, studied the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Hebrew Bible and the Minor Prophets. And also, I mean, there's. I'm just going to let Josh tell you about himself. You may remember him from uh, he talked about the Passover with us before and his experience with the Samaritan Passover. It was a fantastic episode. If you haven't listened to that one, go back to when we did Exodus 12 and find that episode and you'll love hearing from Josh uh, then. So welcome, Josh. Thanks, Gary. Great to be back. Yeah. So remind uh, us, and we have new people now by, by now in the audience. So uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I uh, studied ancient Near Eastern studies at BYU. Uh, after graduating there, I went on to graduate school uh, where I got a master's degree in biblical studies from Trinity Western University in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, when I finished my master's degree there, I uh, made the trek across the continent to Florida State University, uh, where I did my PhD there in religion with an emphasis in uh, religions of Western antiquity, uh, which is a really fancy way of saying we studied the period from about 600 BC to about 600 AD. Um, and given just a, a broad general sense of uh, the ancient Jewish practices, ancient Judaism, uh, Second Temple Judaism, and then early Christianity. Uh, while I was writing my dissertation on the status of the minor prophets uh, in the Second Temple period and predominantly among the Dead Sea Scrolls community, um, I had the opportunity to be able to live in Israel for a year. Uh, where I worked at the University of Haifa uh, on the Scripta Qumranica Electronica team. We'll talk a little bit more about how that project helped this section of Scripture become a little more real for me. Uh, while there, I also was a fellow and scholar with the Orion Center for Dead Sea Scrolls Research at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Uh, after finishing my research, came back and finished my dissertation, uh, and then was hired as a full-time religious educator with seminaries and institutes of religion. And so now I spend my days uh, teaching high school students at Bingham High School, uh, going through the Come Follow Me material, and then in the evenings get an opportunity to delve into the research and uh, continue to do one of the things that I love, which is uh, making some of these more detailed aspects of history uh, and the Bible come to life for regular folk who are just interested in being able to understand the scriptures better. Perfect. And that's what we like. We like making the scriptures come to life for people. That's what this podcast is all about. So that's fantastic. Thank you. Uh, and again, we're just pleased to have you with us. And we're anxious to see where you take us as we study. Uh, what are we doing? Haggai and Zechariah this week. Okay, Josh. So before we jump in, let's just give some quick bullet points about the things that we're going to cover today. So we're going to kind of do an introduction to who Haggai and Zechariah, or the, the time period of Haggai and Zechariah, and a little bit about Haggai. And we're especially going to focus on uh, his call to start building the temple. Uh, we'll share a couple of personal stories about what we can learn uh, from that and from the idea of consider your ways. He keeps asking them to consider your ways and how that's affected each of us personally. And, and then we'll circle back around to talk about uh, how God is asking us to focus on him and his kingdom rather than ourselves. Okay, so with that in mind. So one of the things that we can maybe start with is the fact that these are two of the minor prophet texts um, that sometimes get ignored in our regular study. 
uh, we get to these people and we go, wait a second, I don't know who, who's this Haggai fellow. And uh, then we get to Zechariah and we're a little more excited because we're going, whoa, wait a second, like all this second coming language and prophecies that we're somewhat familiar with because we talk about them um, and because they find their way into the scriptures of the New Testament. So yeah. we're a little more familiar um, with Zechariah particularly. Um, but Haggai, sometimes we just go, who's this? Um, and we, we memorize the song in primary and, and move along. But these are a collection of these minor prophets um, that are taking place over an extended history of time. So we can go all the way back to uh, the 8th century BCE with some of the minor prophets. And now we're moving all the way to the other end, which is the post-exilic period. We're now coming out of exile. Uh, those of the kingdom of Judah are coming back to Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the city. Uh, and part of the focus of these prophetic texts is how do you reestablish a people? And I get really excited about these prophetic texts because we think it's a really easy transition. Okay, the, the southern kingdom of Judah is ultimately destroyed, taken into exile into Babylon in the 580s B.C. And then what we're having is these groups coming back in the 530s B.C. And we just think, oh, we just pick up where we left off. Uh, and we forget that we have a city that's destroyed. We have people that are staying behind that weren't taken into exile who've already established themselves in the land. Uh, and so we get a completely new dynamic of what is the southern kingdom of Judah uh, and to a lesser extent, the northern kingdom of Israel. What does it look like after exile with Cyrus allowing the, the people to come back when the Persians are able to conquer the Babylonians and saying, go back, go back to your homelands. Some people are like, no, I'm, I'm okay with staying here in Babylon. I've gotten my life all right here. Uh, other people are, are going home and saying, let's go back. But then what do you do? And so these prophetic texts give us an insight into how prophets were prophesying about reestablishing a people in the kingdom of Judah and in the city of Jerusalem after the exile. Uh, wonderful. And I think it's it's not a very well studied period among members of the church, typically, but but a really important period because both in terms of history, because this is what will start the Judaism that we'll find in, in Jerusalem in the New Testament. It, it really starts with this period. So that's important. But also in terms, if we're going to just think of, of comparing ourselves to the house of Israel and, uh, you know, trying to personalize this and apply this, I mean, this is the returning to God phase that we all have to go through again and again and again. And that's a pretty important phase. So uh, for both reasons, I think this should be a more studied uh, aspect of our uh, Old Testament. So fantastic background. Thank you. Uh, so where else? Well, one of the things, as you were talking there, Carrie, that, that really impressed me was this idea that we probably don't talk about a lot because we don't have a lot of narrative about what happened. Um, before we had started recording, we were talking a little bit about how these books probably fit better in the narrative of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so the only amount of narrative that we really get about what's going on is Ezra and Nehemiah, because these prophetic books are more teachings by the prophet. And so it's almost like trying to say, OK, let's try and understand a general conference address, but let's take it out of the context of the history and just say, OK, here's the talk or here's the address that's given and make sense of it. 
And so we get references to specific events that are happening in history that the people are familiar with. We as a modern audience have to pause and go, wait a second, where is this? And there's not a nice little cross-reference at the bottom where we can just say, wait a second, okay, this is what's happening. Okay, cross-reference to the narrative back in this book. And because we don't have that, I think that's one of the reasons we don't study it is we're uncomfortable with, wait a second, what's the history? What's going on with the people? Um, Because once we get out of the historical books, the the Kings and the Chronicles, uh, and Ezra and Nehemiah to some extent, we go, now where do we go? Yep. And that begins this period of um, that some people call the intertestamental period. Other people might um, might call the second temple period. We'll talk a little bit about that with Haggai here in a moment. But um, it's this period that we don't have a canonized scriptural text for. And so we don't know where to turn. Uh, and we also, from a historian's perspective, we don't have a ton of sources that give us full details of what's happening. Uh, We're having to rely on other later sources that are looking back and giving us the history. uh, And we have to rely a lot more on archaeology and and information from other parts of the world that aren't easily accessible by by most individuals. I I couldn't agree more. And I think uh, so. I mean, just to kind of briefly reemphasize that this is that I mean, it it covers some of the same period as Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, and the rebuilding of the temple and so on. And and, and reminding, if our audience would just remind themselves of that historical circumstance, it will really help them understand it. And maybe I could use an analogy. I, I think that we all understood all sorts of references that were made, in, say, in the April 2020 and the October 2020 General Conference, the things that were happening in the world. But a couple hundred years from now, if someone had, had no idea what month and year those talks are being given, there'd be all sorts of references that they just wouldn't get, right? Because they've COVID and earthquakes that had happened in Utah and whatever else, right? I mean, they'd be like, what, what are they talking about? But it was obvious to us. And that's, that's how these books would have been for Zechariah and Haggai's audience. And we need to get that history going so that we, we can understand references like, like a reference to COVID or a reference to an earthquake. Yeah. And, and I think maybe a great, place that we can kind of anchor ourselves in and this is what we do get some reference in Ezra and Nehemiah is the concept of the temple mm-hmm. uh, and so as we start into the text of Haggai we have to remember that Haggai is prophesying at a time when the temple has not been rebuilt yet and so we get the exiles who come back from Babylon uh, and try to reestablish the city but as most of us sometimes we get our priorities out of line Uh, And so these individuals are coming back and they're reestablishing the city, but they don't reestablish the temple right away. Uh, And I even think I was guilty of this until you really delve into it. You just automatically think, oh, well, the temple is destroyed in 587 BC. And then when they come back, they just rebuild it. That's the first thing that they do because we have another temple that's going to that's going to stand for a while. Uh, But the reality of the situation is, is. Even when we read Ezra and Nehemiah, it almost seems as if that was one of the first things that they did. But then we jump into a text like Haggai where the prophet is saying, you are in trouble because you're putting your own needs above the needs of God. Yep. Um, and and that context is very easy to miss, especially if we're maybe hurriedly reading through Haggai because we get excited about the fact that, you know, it's only a mere 30, 41 verses. And so we're just like, oh, okay, we're gonna we're gonna jump in here. We're gonna get that done. Um, 
And so we sometimes forget to slow down and look at the text and say, okay, what exactly is happening in this context? Oh, that's really good. That's really good. And I, so again, in, in kind of the notion of making the scriptures real, uh, I, maybe I can take our, our audience on a little bit of a, a, a thought or imagination exercise, right? And, and picture yourself going back to a city that, I mean, some other people are, are there, right? But you don't have a home there. And it's not set up. You don't have a farm or anything like that. And no one in your group has a home or a farm there. So when you get there, it's tough to, to find a comfortable place to live and a, and a comfortable living. And uh, and I think all of us, our first thoughts would be to let's let's make this a good place for us to live. Let's take care of our food needs and that kind of a thing. And uh, and that will be a pressing need for long enough. And plus, you can kind of improve and improve and improve that it would be pretty easy for years to slip by. And it seems like it's a number of years, but uh, based on just the reigns of the kings that they give us as this is happening. But uh, for years to slip by where you're still just focusing on, I got to I got to get things good at home. And I, I would guess that's what's happened here. I mean, we don't know. Like you said, we don't have the record of it. We just have the record of saying, hey, what are you doing? But uh, but I can picture myself in those shoes and having that happen. And and think of our own time, right, is we can really contemporize this. I, I was recently having a conversation with a member, member of a temple presidency uh, and saying it's interesting as we study this concept of going away and coming back. A lot of us, even today, are still in that transition. Uh, we talk about the October and the, the April yeah. general conferences and, uh, and yeah. COVID and, and that world and closing down temples. Uh, I've thought to myself, um, have I fully returned to where I was at before the pandemic with my religious observance? Yeah. Um, have have I given equal devotion to returning to those acts, uh, attending the temple, maybe even doing family history work or other uh, items that God has asked me to prioritize that weren't accessible or weren't very accessible during the pandemic and now are accessible again? Yeah. Uh, but have I let other things slide in and take the place of that time that I was that I would have utilized before? Yep. And there are plenty of people who haven't even made it back to sacrament meeting yet, right? They they got used to broadcast sacrament or none and, and haven't made it. So yeah, I mean it happens. Yeah, and and so I think maybe better than any other time in, in Latter-day Saint history, we may understand these texts a little bit better given our historical situation. Um, and as we as we think of that, and, and that takes me to the text of Haggai here, um, is I love Haggai chapter one, verse seven, where the Lord is starting his message to the children of Israel who have returned, saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And so that question that Haggai starts with is, I want you to stop for a second and consider where you're at. I want you to consider what you're doing because then he's going to go on in verse eight to say, go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house and I will take pleasure in it and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. But he looked for much and lo, it came to little. And when he brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Because of mine house that is waste and ye run every man unto his own house. And so it's this idea of the... All the people, and, and I'm thinking New Testament language here, is this idea that foxes have holes and birds have nests, mm -hmm. but the Son of Man hath no place to lay his head. 
yeah. um, a scripture that's actually quoted in the sermon given at the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, saying, we've gone a long period without a temple. Now the Son of Man has a place to lay his head again. That's what's happening here is the Lord is giving a message through Haggai saying, wait a second. I don't have a place to lay my head. You have not rebuilt my temple because at the end of the day, when you think about the temple, you just run back home to whatever you're doing. And I need you to go back to the mountain, go back to where my temple is to be built, bring items and rebuild the temple. That needs to be a priority. Oh, well said. So um, as, as we think, and that's one of my favorite messages of Haggai is, is the idea that Haggai is trying to encourage the people to get back to the temple. Um, and, and I think I've, I've always thought of this text historically um, until I had an opportunity to work really closely with this text. Um, one of the projects I worked on while I was a researcher in Israel was a project reconstructing a manuscript that had the text of Haggai on it. Uh, so this is an ancient manuscript found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, classified as 4Q77. Uh, this manuscript uh, is a unique manuscript because it preserves the transition from the text of Zephaniah into the text of Haggai. And so it's one of only a few texts that we have from the Dead Sea Scrolls that preserve biblical texts that have more than one text on the same manuscript. And we can say for certain that these texts were together because we have one of the fragments of the text that shows the transition from Zephaniah to Haggai. Uh, and so this is a, a really cool text. And, and Haggai became very real to me when I'm sitting in the IAA and the Israel Antiquities Authority Preservation Lab. And I have a chance to look at a manuscript that's over 2,000 years old uh, and being able to say this fragment right here is our oldest representation of the text of Haggai. We don't have an older text. Uh, and so bridging that 2,100-year gap of uh, text was, was something that excited me a lot uh, with regards to the text of Haggai. So as I was working on this text, uh, and uh, for those who may not be aware, when you're working with the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's more like putting a puzzle together than yeah. reading an actual manuscript. Yeah, scrolls uh, is kind are... of a, a misnomer. It's it, For <laughs> most of them, it should be called the Dead Sea Fragments or Dead Sea Confetti. Yes, exactly. I love to, I love to tell my students uh, the analogy that, that I like to give when we study the text is imagine that you're at your home and somebody walks in with a thousand 1,000 piece puzzles and they take all 1,000 of those puzzles and they open all of the boxes and mix them together in one big garbage bag yeah. and, so and they then mix throw them away up, a bunch of them yeah right uh, about about three-fourths of them so you're only going to get a quarter of those pieces back and 75 percent of all of those puzzles are going to be destroyed and unattainable and yes. so the job of, of a Dead Sea Scroll scholar is to find a piece of a puzzle and say, okay, wait a second, does this go with this piece? And you, you can't connect the two pieces because all the connecting pieces in between are gone. Yep. Um, and that's what we're doing with this manuscript is, is that we have the text of Zephaniah and Haggai, but we only have six fragments for the entire text. So it's a thousand piece puzzle and we have six pieces of the puzzle. Uh, and one of the research uh, interests that I have is actually trying to create the rest of the puzzle with just those six pieces. Uh, and, and that was the project I was working on with this Haggai text, uh, is I had some of the pieces of Haggai, but 
I'm trying to figure out how they fit together. And one of the, the interesting parts about 4Q77 is one of the fragments was unidentified. There was writing on it, but nobody knew where that puzzle piece fit. Uh, and so it, it, that helped me to connect with Haggai a little bit uh, in the sense that here's a text that is often forgotten. And now we only have a few fragments of it left uh, from the Dead Sea Scrolls in history. So why not jump in? And so that I, I found this, this manuscript, uh, these fragments of this manuscript and decided, well, nobody else is working on it. So I might as well. That's great. And we need more people like you. Anyway, keep going with the story. Yeah. So one of the things is that fragment that, that I was just speaking about that we didn't have an identification for. I spent two months laboring over concordances, uh, doing searches in Hebrew lexicon, uh, trying to find where these words fit. Uh, the scholars who worked originally on this scroll felt that that fragment belonged with the other five fragments that we had identified, but they didn't know where it went. And so I spent two months with this one fragment that has a complete total of four words on it. Uh, so you have four words on the fragment and trying to figure out where it fits. And because the words are lined up in such a way, you can't just find one word, you've got to find the other word about the same distance away as the word on the, the top line. And, and they're not words like that go in a row. It's like having the, the, the first uh, uh, couple words, the first word of four different lines in a book, right? So it, it's not like even a phrase. It's just the, uh, they're vertical rather than horizontal words. Yeah, right? exactly. So you've got, you've got one word from line one, you've got two words from line two, and you've got one word from line three. Uh, and so um, imagine taking your novel or another book that you're reading and just cutting out a small piece of those lines in, in, in your book and trying to figure out, OK, how do we find what the words that make up the rest of the page are? Uh, but right. give people about 2000 years to be able to sit on it and then and then come back to it. <laughs> uh, and so so I'm wrestling with this idea of where does this go? How does this work? Um, and I, I got really discouraged, actually. Uh, because you would think you've got four words on a fragment. You already know that it's coming from the text of Zephaniah or Haggai. And the fact that I couldn't find it, I actually questioned whether or not I had, I had uh, the credentials to even be working in the Dead Sea Scrolls or being a biblical scholar. <laughs> and so that discouragement uh, led to me thinking about this a lot. And one day I was, I was walking from our home uh, to the University of Haifa, which is on the top of Mount Carmel in, in Israel. Um, and that was one way that I liked to just connect with the land and also to have some time to myself was to walk to campus. Uh, and so every day I would hike up Mount Carmel and then, and then hike back. So it gave me a lot of time to think. And one day I was, I was walking up the hill, it was a Sunday, and I very clearly had the impression of remember my name. Uh, and with it being Sunday, uh, for those who may not be familiar, in Israel, uh, when you go to church, you go to church on Saturday. Uh, you align with the Jewish Sabbath. Uh, and so we had gone to church the day before, and I was going to work on Sunday. It was like a Monday there. And so I was walking up the hill, and I was thinking about the sacrament service the day before. And that's what I felt the impression was about, was I was pondering a little bit about the sacrament and what it means to take his name upon us. 
uh, I was thinking a little bit about the idea of what am I doing to remember him? And I thought, well, remember my name. Like, what does that have to do with the sacrament? So I made my walk up to my office at, at the University of Haifa, and I was sitting down with the fragment. And I was again looking at the critical edition of this manuscript. And uh, the critical edition had three letters, um, and the letters were a hey, a yod, and a hey. Uh, and so for those who may be familiar with Hebrew, those are just a couple of the Hebrew letters. So I remember my advisor for my master's degree telling me that the yod and the vav are often confused in ancient manuscripts, uh, simply because of the length of the, uh, the, the stem of the, the, the letter. Uh, and so I just had this weird thought, what if I start searching for a hey, a vav, and a hey, instead of a hey, a yod, and a hey within the text of Haggai? And so I did that, and then I remembered the impression I had had that morning. Remember my name. And so the divine name in Hebrew is spelled with a yod, a hey, a vav, and a hey. And so yod, hey, vav, hey is the divine name or the name for Jehovah. And I thought, well, what if, what if this word right here is the divine name? And I did a search, and within five minutes, I had found that the the word on the first line and the words on the third line fit perfectly if the middle word was Jehovah. Mm. Um, and and that aligned with the text of Haggai 1, 14 and 15, which the text reads, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiliel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Yohesheth, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, in the fourth and the twentieth day of the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. And uh, as we look in um, the text, I, I couldn't help but make that connection. That, that first line, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. And as I was reading that text and putting this fragment into my created reconstruction, recreating the puzzle, as it were, I thought, you know what? The Lord stirred the, or stirred the spirit of Zerubbabel, and today I feel like the spirit of the Lord stirred me. Uh, it helped to direct me. And in the big scheme of things, I don't think the Lord is too worried about whether or not we identify this fragment. <laughs> but the Lord was aware of my situation, and he was aware that I was pleading and seeking and trying to find a way uh, to find this. And because I cared about it, I think the Lord cared about it enough to say, hey, go in this direction. Uh, so I put that together and really hurriedly and um, took the fragment and the reconstruction sent an email very quickly to the editor of that critical edition and said, hey, can you tell me if you think this works? Uh, and within 20 minutes, I got a response from him, which was amazing given the fact that he was on the West Coast of the United States and I was in Israel. And <laughs> we're about 12 hours apart. Uh, but within 20 minutes, he said, Josh, I just saw your email. I think that your proposal isn't only probable, it's likely the only explanation for this fragment. Um, and, and I can't say that that was just me. But that was the Lord stepping in and assisting in something. And then the fact that it connected with the text made me just almost have an endearing effect to the text of a habit. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. It's amazing how 
uh, we interact with scriptures in so many different ways, but they make them precious to us. Yeah. And so um, to this day in my office, I've, I've got a picture uh, that I printed off of my reconstruction. And every day I, I, I look at the text of Haggai. Um, I don't read it all the time, but uh, being able to pause for a second and just think and think back to that experience. Uh, and maybe if we connect it back to what's going on in the text uh, is we talk about the, this and the second temple uh, is going to get this kind of secondary name as the temple of Zerubbabel. If we look that up in some of our um, uh, resources that help us understand the scriptures, we see Zerubbabel's name and connected with the second temple. Now, one of the historical things we have to remember is Zerubbabel did create this temple, but most historical accounts will tell us that it was a shack compared to the temple that had originally been built by Solomon. Uh, and so we have a temple, but for a lot of people, they were embarrassed by it. Uh, if we take the historical record at face value, they were kind of embarrassed. And we know that Herod was embarrassed by it because he's going to come in 400, 500 years later, and he's going to say, no, 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 this is not what a temple needs to look like in my home country. We need to build this and make it extravagant. So we see a lot of temple pictures of Herod's temple and think, oh, that's the second temple. But the temple before Herod comes along is very much a, a shack and something that was enough to get by. And we know that the, uh, the children of Israel were like, okay, we're done. We got it done. We're good. Uh, we now have a temple. Uh, but that helps me reflect as well. Um, are there times that I give a mediocre effort uh, instead of really magnifying what the Lord is asking me to do? Do I sometimes give a mediocre effort just to say that I've got the job done? Uh, that's a great question, a great way of looking at it. And it's it's worth thinking. I, I think most of the time we don't realize this, but uh, that temple that uh, Zerubbabel built was uh, stood longer than any of the other temples. I mean, certainly longer than Herod's refurbishment of it, which was, what, like 70 years or less, um, but uh, longer than Solomon's temple as well. This is, this is the longest lasting temple uh, that, that, uh, we've had. And so, uh, it's, I, I'm grateful for that temple. And at the same time saying, it's a shame that, uh, it didn't get just a little bit more, right. A little more effort, but, but I, I I'm not in their shoes. So fine. But, uh, uh still, I, I think it's worth remembering and asking ourselves that question that you just asked. Well, and, and, and that's maybe taking it from a pessimistic view. I love that you just turned it to an optimistic view is maybe they did the best with what they had uh, and that the Lord was able to make something that was less extravagant, less elegant and make it last for a long time because of the fact that the people were doing the best with what they had. And in our own lives, the Lord would do the same thing. Uh, yeah. The Lord will take our meaning, uh, even maybe even a half-hearted effort and he'll magnify that to something great if we will simply act. Um, and so going back to Haggai 1.7, consider your ways. Uh, this almost to me is the theme of Haggai, of how do I consider my ways and what I'm doing? And are there times that I can only give a little bit and God will magnify it? And are there times that maybe I need to give a little bit more because I have the ability to give a little bit more and not shortchange the Lord? Yeah, it seems to me, I, I, I should have looked this up. Maybe we'll try and... and uh put this in the show notes, but it seems like there was a general conference talk not that long ago where the theme of it was taken from Haggai and it was consider your ways was I think the name of the talk. And the, and the idea was 
uh, it's worth stopping and looking at what you're doing. And is it aligning with what God would have you do, which is really what, what Haggai is asking uh, Judah in that question, consider your ways as you make sure you have a comfortable home, but don't me, is that really what you want? And that's a question we can ask ourselves on any number of issues. Yeah. And, and kind of, kind of bring it full circle. I love the last verse uh, for whatever reason, maybe it's just the sense of feeling accomplishment and getting to the finish. Uh, but I'm, I'm all, I'm interested in what it said in, in Haggai chapter two, verse 23. Um, so here it says in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant and the son of Shetiliel, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. Um, and so this idea that God um, is aware of Zerubbabel's efforts, um, that he's going to use him. Uh, we see that term signet in there. I can't help but think of a signet ring uh, and this idea of uh, an object that's going to represent the individual that's, that's giving the message. But the fact that Zerubbabel was chosen for a specific uh, um, mission um, and it wasn't the mission of Haggai. It wasn't the mission of Ezra. It wasn't the mission of Nehemiah. Uh, it was his responsibility. Uh, and I like to think of that in my own life as much as possible. Uh, what has God chosen me to do? And sometimes I fight back because I want it to be something different. Uh, I want uh, a certain job or I want a certain position and it doesn't seem to be coming my way. But is that God's way of saying, Josh, hey, I need you to be happy with where you're at. I'm guiding your life. Trust me. Yeah. You've been chosen. Don't get so caught up in thinking that you know the only way for you to be successful or the only thing that you want to do in life. That's such a powerful lesson because most of us will have, I, I, again, this is another recent general conference talk, but uh, the phrase, I think it was just this last conference, someone mentioned the notion of, uh, and as we do the, the journey of life, God gives us a lot of layovers. Right? Where we just sometimes it's like, okay, I thought I was going here and maybe you're going to go there and maybe actually you're going to get sent a different direction. But right now you're in the layover period. Right? So, and just for our audience, I did just look up uh, that that talk I was referencing was from 2019. It's called True Disciples of the Savior by Elder Terrence M. Vincent of the Presidency of the Seventy. And he starts out by quoting Haggai and the question, consider your ways. So that's that's the one I was referencing for those who want to look that up. But anyway, sorry, keep going. Yeah, so I, I, and it's easy, I think sometimes it gets easy for us to say, to give lip service to that idea, I'll trust the Lord, um, but other times it's real, um, and I, I think of my own life, um, and in some ways I've had so many blessings, I've had so many great opportunities uh, to be able to study the scriptures and then to be able to help make those relevant and real for, for others. Um, but I, I like to emphasize with my students and others I talk to, um, there are times where I sometimes don't know where God's trying to take me. Uh, I have an intention and I have a direction that I want to go. Um, I, I have an idea of what I really, really, really want to do with my life. And God gently is trying to nudge me and say, Josh, actually, I need you to do something else. Um, and in some ways, that's where I feel I'm at, at in my life right now. There are things that I would love to do. 
there are opportunities that I would love to have. Um, but am I considering my ways enough to be able to be humble and say, Lord, this is what I want, but I'm willing to accept what you need me to do. Um, my prayers changed a lot when I realized that from the Savior's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, as we read the Savior, when he prays, he says, Lord, if thou be willing, let this cup pass from me. Um, and, but if not, right, or nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Um, that changed the way that I prayed. I could have confidence that God will let me come to him and say, Heavenly Father, this is really what I want to do. This is really what I want to accomplish. But, yeah. or nevertheless, if we want to use scriptural phraseology, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And I love that sometimes in my life when I've said that prayer, God has said, my will is for you to have what you want. Here you go. And sometimes we think, oh, God's not going to answer my prayers. Um, but if we pray that way, it's changed my outlook because then I don't sit there and go, why isn't God answering my prayers? I can then say, look, God is answering my prayers in this way rather than this way. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think it's happened to all of us in life any number of times. And sometimes it's hard uh, to wrestle with until we develop that attitude that you're talking about. I, I can't tell you how many times in my own life. I, I felt directed to do this, and I thought it was because it would end up in this, but it was really to get me to this point so we could take a hard right turn and get to another place, and I needed to be okay with that other place, and typically I found that other place was better than what I originally thought. Yeah, yeah. and and um, again, we're making the scriptures real in, in, in this discussion, and, and that's how I feel. I originally applied to be a seminary teacher when I finished my undergraduate degree. Uh, and so I finished my undergraduate degree. I went through all of the seminary teacher free service and, and being evaluated by teachers. And then at the very end of that process, they said, Josh, thank you for everything you've done. We're not going to hire you. Mm. Um, and so that's what really kind of nudged me to go off to graduate school and, and to, to get a PhD. Uh, and then I had in my mind a very specific job that I was going to get out of that. And that job didn't come to fruition. And because there's some odd circumstances, actually, but yeah, <laughs> but, but yeah. And so, so the idea of saying, wow, like I, I thought I was doing everything exactly like you said, um, I thought I was going in this direction. And then to get a phone call from seminaries and institutes when I had finished my PhD and they said, Josh, we want you to come teach for us. Uh, and I go, okay, that's great. And then I found myself sitting in my office one day and saying, God, what's going on? I'm literally where I was eight years ago. <laughs> eight years ago, I would have been in this exact same office, in this exact same situation. Why did you send me wandering through graduate school for eight years, like the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40, to end up right back where I would have been before? Um, and I think at first that question was very accusatory. Why? Why am I here? Why did you do this? Why are you not letting me move where I want to move? And now a couple of years removed from those initial experiences, I now look and say, what do you need me to do now that I couldn't have done eight years ago? Hmm. What did I learn in the last eight years? Or what did I do that you can now utilize that I needed to go do so that I would be back in the spot? Uh, it's that change of perspective. It's again, considering my ways. 
um, what, how, considering the way that I'm responding, the way that I'm trying to interact. And uh, I'm grateful for a Lord who's patient with us, uh, just like the children of Israel. He's a little frustrated that they haven't built the temple, and he has to get, get after them a little bit. But he's also benevolent in the fact that he says, will you just listen to me and have faith and trust in what I'm trying to do with you? Uh, that's great. That's That's so well said. Good. Well, thank you. Uh, are there some other things you want to touch on? You know, I mean, I know that this week we're talking about Zechariah too, but I, I have to admit, like most of my uh, my work and the experiences have been with with Haggai. So uh, for those who tuned in and were ready to get a better understanding of Zechariah, that's above my pay grade. Um, but <laughs> that's right. I, I hope there there was something from Haggai that's helpful. Yeah, actually, we can just cut this out. I, I don't mind doing a little short cast myself on on uh, Zacharias. So I didn't know if there were some other things that you wanted to talk about. So if not, so we'll edit this out and maybe I'll just jump back in where we were in that discussion. I, I just didn't want to keep going in that if you want to go somewhere else. So No, I, I think what we've talked about, Carrie, I, I don't really think that there's uh, anything right. else that, that I was going to have. OK, so let me let me just jump back in on that discussion, if, if that's OK. Uh, yeah. And Josh, maybe I'll just uh, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I think what you're talking about is so important. Maybe I'll just echo your, your experience. I, I didn't recognize or realize and know that a lot about your own experience, but it's eerily similar to mine, uh, where I felt uh, inspired that I should uh, try and teach seminary. So while I was in, uh, you know, undergrad at BYU, I took the, the little courses that you're supposed to take and went and did some student teaching and felt like it went fantastically. Uh, I thought it was great, uh, but the, the last day where my biggest evaluation was, uh, and I prepared for that lesson and it was ready for a great lesson, I would ask some students to kind of come prepared to share some things and so on, and I can't describe it as anything but a stupor of thought. I got in and I could barely think or function that day. Uh, my students who were great students and always had stuff to offer, the ones that I asked to prepare, they, they hadn't prepared and they didn't have anything. To, it, was a, it was a disaster. A uh, complete disaster, and and I got a letter that said we can we suggest you consider a career in something other than teaching. Um, <laughs> and interestingly, that the guy who, who gave me that letter, and I can't blame him; it wasn't a good lesson, I, and I think intentionally so. But uh, he doesn't remember that was me, but I can remember like about fifteen years later him coming to me for some teaching advice, and and I didn't <laughs> share it with him. But that this this is kind of funny, but uh, but I think it's because the Lord wanted me to also do eight years of graduate school. Uh, and, and in the end, I never did end up being a seminary. Well, I did early morning seminary one year, but, um, but I became a, a, a different and a better teacher than I think I would have been if, if it had started then the way I had imagined it would start. And instead, it's gone a way that was different than I'd planned, but I've sure loved how it's gone. And uh, I'm able to look back and say, the Lord knew what he was doing. And there are a thousand little stories within there that I could go through where, where I felt inspired to do this. And then it turned out this way. And I was so mad at the time. And then later on, I could say, oh, I'm so glad I happened. That was the best thing that could have happened to me. And I mean, that that's in terms of when I got hired by BYU-Hawaii, getting hired by BYU-Hawaii, when I got hired at Provo and, and so on, I, just all along the way. And uh, I think we can all learn that lesson. God knows what he's doing and, uh, and we can trust him. And uh, maybe we can circle around and tie that back into what you were talking about at the beginning that, uh, the, the key is to not get so caught up in building the house that we want to build for ourselves, right? We're not here to build our own house. 
We're not here to make it comfortable for us. We're here to build God's kingdom or the temple is, is the way it works in, in uh, Haggai, right? And so when when we go again, uh, we, can, we can go back to those first couple of verses uh, where he says, uh, verse two, thus speaketh the Lord of hosts saying, this people say the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built, right? So they're saying, nope, it's not, not yet, not time to do it yet. And the word of the Lord, uh, then came the word of the Lord by Haggai, the prophet saying, is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lies waste? Right, and that's when he says, "Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts: Consider your ways." This this notion that, uh, and and so I know we read that and talked about it, but hopefully we're just bringing it around a circle. This notion that we need to forget about building our houses the way we want, and build God's house or God's kingdom the way He wants. And I suspect that in the middle of that, we'll have a house that'll work just fine for us. But uh, it doesn't matter that much if we spend most of our time in God's house anyway. So uh, <laughs> that's, uh, I, I mean, a lot of symbolism in there, but I think uh, some real meaning that we can draw from Haggai as we consider our ways. So good. And and Carrie, I couldn't help but think of uh, Elder Christofferson's recounting of that sometimes we need to seek the Lord's divine correction. Um, that, that as we're considering our ways, as we're seeking to build his house or our own house, um, that the only way that we get back on track is if we seek that divine correction, that's going to come from the Lord. Uh, that's one of the main roles of prophets, as we've talked about all year is prophets are to help us to be able to understand and be on the correct path. Um, and receiving that chastisement, I think the, the, the verse from, from uh, uh, the Book of Mormon, right? Uh, or maybe the Doctrine and Covenants, but this idea that whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Yeah. Um, and that that chastening um, is, is not something that we have with that negative connotation. Uh, it's refining. It's making us better. Um, and if we would accept that process, uh, we'd be able to become so much more than what we are today. Uh. Perfectly said. Well, as always, it was fun, Josh, and and uh, we're going to visit again next week, I believe, to talk about Malachi. So uh, we'll look forward to that. But uh, thank you for helping us with this. We appreciate it. And we hope our audience uh, not only has been edified and that the scriptures have become more real for them, but that they may know some people who this might help. And, and it's all about uh, being helped and then turning around and, uh, and helping someone else and so we we hope that uh, is something that everyone will do and uh, that as the scriptures become more real our relationship with our our father and our savior increase and and uh, that's all we could ask for so thank you